Hello folks, welcome along to this week's episode of Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. It is a real treat to have you with us. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to another episode of my weekly podcast where I dive into the world of film and music. I just wanted to share a really lovely experience that I had um, last night in London at the Prince Charles Theatre Cinema, just off Leicester Square, if you've never been there. It's a wonderful place, got such a great energy to it, such great history. The staff were phenomenal. And it was the location for a very special event that I was asked to host, which was the launch of a brand new album from The Smile. Uh, and if you aren't aware, The Smile are Tom York and Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead and Tom Skinner who is the most amazing drummer and has kind of worked on um, Son of Kemet and loads of other great bands. Their second album, Wall of Eyes, is coming out at the end of the month. And last night we had a launch for the album, which involved a playback of the album and a video for the brand new single, which is Friend of a Friend, and the previous video for the first single, which is the title track from the album, Wall of Eyes, which are both directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, who, of course, Johnny's worked with numerous times on score work. You might have heard both their episodes on this podcast. But then also uh, Paul's worked on quite a number of Radiohead projects as well. So what they did was they played loads of the different productions, whether they be little live sessions that Paul's filmed or old videos from Radiohead that he filmed. So it was just a really lovely celebration. And then I was given the wonderful task of hosting a Q&A with the two Toms and Johnny. So I just wanted to kind of draw your attention to it. It's lovely when the world of this podcast kind of infiltrates life outside of it, which was just really great. It was lovely to see Johnny again and to kind of get to know the two Toms a little bit better as well. If you haven't uh, listened to any of the work from The Smile, then dive in and the new record is exceptional. And, And I got some inside gossip from Johnny Greenwood. In fact, this weekend, Paul Thomas Anderson starts filming his new film. Yeah! Apparently, though, it's a long shoot. Anyway, sounds like Johnny's on board to do the score as well. So, yes, all good news. Anyway, that's that. On to this week's episode. And our latest guest on this bonus episode of Soundtracking is Alexander Payne, who joined me to discuss his new film, The Holdovers. And as recording this on the 19th of January, it is out today. The film's set in the early 70s and it stars Paul Giamatti as a strict classics teacher who uh, teaches at a New England boarding school and he's forced to chaperone a handful of students with nowhere to go over the Christmas break and it ends up being him, one other student, Angus, played by the brilliant Dominique Sessa, you'll hear more about him from Alexander in a bit, and Mary who's kind of the school chef who also spends time at the school for reasons that will be apparent once you watch the film. Um, she's played by Divine Joy Randolph, who's been nominated, quite rightly so, for everything for Best Supporting Actress and has also won a couple of things as well. She is phenomenal in this film. It's just a really beautiful film. It's atmospheric. You're completely immersed in the environment, this kind of school and the school grounds where it's snowing. And there's something about the sound of an environment where there's snow that I find really comforting. The score is great. The music, the needle drops in it are absolutely brilliant. And it's just got this aesthetic to it that is really pleasing. Uh, and just watching the arc and the journey of these three characters in particular is fabulously entertaining. The Holdover is scored by Mark Orton. So we'll begin with his cue, A Girl in Tow.
Hey Alexander, listen, thank you so much for joining me to discuss your wonderful new film. I guess it'd be great to start at the beginning. And what was the starting point for you when it came to, I guess, developing these characters in this story with writer David Hemmingson? I was just touched by the story. You know, I, I found David Hemmingson. He had written a pilot for a you know, proposed TV series that took place in a boarding school in New England. And on the basis of that, I asked him whether he wouldn't consider writing a feature film for me based on an idea I gave him, which was set in that same world. And I'm just so grateful for him to bring, for bringing, how can I say this in a non-cliche way, <laughs> just that he came up with a story with characters I cared about. To be sure, I mean, he, he had the advantage in that I was giving him constant notes along the way. You know, it was my first experience, let's say, directing a writer. Yeah. I put in the premise, and then he suggested uh, a few different storylines, and I, I chose one that felt right to me. And he came up with a cook character. I'd never foreseen her coming. And uh, all I can say is, and sorry for the long-winded answer, is by the end of the process, we had something that was personal to us both. He had yeah. studied my movies. He'd kind of saw it, asked me a lot of questions. He wanted to be able to write a song I could sing. Nice. No, it's true. You have to write within, you know, someone in the director's vocal range. So it's very much my sensibility. And of course, I did rewriting myself. And uh, but then he relied a lot on his personal experience and himself as a young man. So I don't know, it was a rich experience. I'm really grateful for it. I hope it's not the only time I get an experience like that. Did you always have um, Paul in mind for um, for Hunnam then for that character? A thousand percent. Yes. I guess that's the wonderful thing, isn't it, about the collaboration as a director, is that you you bring team players on board that you hope are going to add to that script, add to your direction, and just bring this thing, ignite this character and really bring it to life. And I feel we really get that with all these performances, whether it be, you know, Paul that you've worked with before, but Divine, who's just extraordinary in this character, and, and Dominic as well, who I believe has never, you know, done anything on camera before, but is that a wonderful experience for you as a director when you see how these words in your direction give these people the opportunity to play? Casting. I mean, my number one job, really, I mean, I have many jobs as a you know movie director. We all do. But the most important are making sure that the screenplay is sound and casting well. So if basically I've got the right actors playing the, the parts, then I really don't have to do much directing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's true. There, there's an old cliche, which is um, 90% or assign whatever percentage you want. 90% of directing is casting. And it's really true. When you're writing, do you, uh, where does music come into the process for you? Because music, music is, is, a, is a beautiful character in this film and it's kind of got, got almost kind of got different guises. You've got the, this kind of beautiful score that Mark's worked on. You've got these needle drops that are, kind of just effortlessly kind of woven in. But then you've also got these brilliant moments of the kind of choir singing the Christmas carols that kind of come yeah. in at, at really kind of brilliant moments. It's it's really effective and it really kind of gets under your skin as well. But for you, when do you start thinking about music? First of all, thank you for paying such close attention to the music in the film. Thanks for for the care and thought put into that question. It starts from the get-go, not not during production, because I'm just trying to harvest the film we need for editing. It really begins the first week of editing. Uh, Kevin, my editor, and I, he has a very good musical sense. I'd like to think I do, too. 
And we just start slapping pieces of music on. We're joined soon thereafter by the third member of our musical <clears throat> triumvirate, uh, a music editor we've worked with since election. So we've been wow. a th threesome on the music front for 25 years. His name is Richard Ford. He's from London originally. And uh, then he starts giving us more finely considered uh, choices. The most important thing, and the, the way I'm flattered by your question, is that we have music functioning in the different ways that you suggest, but hopefully always in a way which doesn't call attention to itself, that all the musical choices support the mood, support the rhythm of the scene that they accompany. It's clever, though, because I think the first piece of music we have is the boys singing in the choir. And then we go into this fantastic track called Silver Joy by Damien Girado, which kind of comes yeah. back now and again as well. And that almost sets the tone. That's an important choice to make at the start of the film because you are you kind of laying the foundations uh, in a way, aren't you? Yeah, well, that's all in real one. Actually, that song Silver Joy doesn't reprise later in the film, but it's used twice during the credit sequence. Uh, and that's a rare case of a, of a contemporary song that passes as a period song. I've got two oh, in the wow. I mean, most, most of it's period appropriate music, but Damien Gerardo and there's a piece later by Karung Ben, that wonderful trio that's contemporary, but as, as I say, passes as period. You know, it's a funny thing in the movies I make, which are mostly comedies, there's a phrase used, you know, the studio people will say it. Oh, you've got to give them permission to laugh. You got to give them permission to laugh somehow in the first reel of the picture. And I think I trusted the comedy this time and the Damien Gerardo piece, uh, as melancholy as it is, also says to the audience, you have permission to feel. You have permission also to have melancholy. Let me sleep. In the slumber of the morning There's nowhere I need to be And my dreams are still our calling Lay your troubles on the ground No need to worry about them now Daylight shaking But it is funny because then you have that sharp cut into Beethoven where where we are in kind of see Hunnam's quarters in a way kind of thing. And it's kind of just like you're kind of almost like slapped into his world kind of thing. And you get you right. know that insight to his bed and where he is and all that kind of thing. It's kind of it's so clever to give us an insight into to character through that shift in music and that one, you know, like, oh, OK, listens to this. This tells me a little bit about him and that kind of thing. Yeah, and a shot I missed, I, a shot I missed getting is I should have gotten a close up of this of the record going on the record player to really make sure the audience know that it's uh, that it's a record he's playing. I, I think they understand it, but had I to do over again, I would have gotten a shot of the record player. <laughs> I love that. You're kind of critiquing your own, your oh, own yeah. things. Always. Oh, yeah. But also at the party as well, where um, where Mary's in charge of the music and she's got that Temptations version of Silent Night on, you know, and, yeah. and that choice. So, but I imagine you you had that was cleared before, so you could play it on set, you know, so that it was no, yeah. no, no, <gasps> no, 
No, that was, we had no idea what would be in there when we were shooting. The only thing we knew was the Artie Shaw song, When Winter Comes, because that's scripted. So we knew that song, but everything else we, we decided later in post. We don't really talk that much. <laughs> it's <a> funny <laughs> thing. You know, I, I'm here in London. I'm Paul Giamatti was here with me right now. And earlier today, we were doing some interviews together. And, and the, the question arises, what were your conversations like about the character? What, and we look at each other and say, well, we didn't really talk very much. I mean, it's all, it's, it, no, at a certain level, it's just all understood. But so it is with Mark Orton, the composer who had done my film uh, Nebraska 10 years ago and to whom I returned for this one. He's a, a smart guy. He has a good innate sense of film and of how music functions in film. And he knows my taste. And then it's just a matter of uh, trial and error. Because it often, you know, what do you, like for a, a given, you know, if we spot the film, spotting means it'll start more or less here and finish more or less here. And we more or less want it to do X, Y, or Z. And, uh, and then he'll just come back with three, four, five different samples of what it could be. I select one and then he develops that. It's a common process, I think, between directors and composers. It's lovely, though, because I think Q can have a lot of different jobs to do within a film. And there's there's a lovely moment in, in The Holdovers. I think the Q's called The Glove, where he loses, you know, he drops the glove in the river. But there's a lovely little kind of series of shots that it's almost like a short film over with this Q of music, which for me is is about those different characters that we see in those scenes about kind of loss and loneliness almost in a way. Anguish. Wow. Yeah, that that red-haired Mormon boy who otherwise you have no idea who he is. Mm. I mean, I wanted each of those boys, even though they're flushed down the narrative toilet about 40, 40 <laughs> plus pages in, I still wanted each to have some kind of raison d'etre. And why is this person there? And so that boy gets his moment of anguish. And then we see Mary's anguish putting the her jigsaw puzzle together and then to the korean kid who's wet his bed <laughs> so yes it is a little montage of anguish with lovely music by mr orton thanks for saying so
that's Mark kind of, I don't know, getting that insight from that moment of going, this is the type of music that I want to create with this mood to it. I think that's the lovely thing as well, is that the the beautiful relationship that the different styles of music have, whether it be Q, whether it be needle drops, or whether it be the choir, they kind of feel like they're part of a family. So that it doesn't feel like you kind of clank from, you know, from the choir singing to it's got there's lovely Correct. fluidity between them all. Yeah, a nice fluidity, but also you've been trained in, as you suggest, in real one when we crash and in, bang into the Emperor Concerto and <laughs> and then to um, a rock and roll tune that the kids are listening to in their dorm. You know that there's going to be a palette, but that hopefully you'll, you'll trust that it, as you use the word family, but that it all uh, belongs in the same film. Venus is on the radio, isn't it? That's a great track. Yes, it is. <laughs> I really laughed out loud as well and I can't believe that it wasn't it wasn't there on set but where Paul's at the party he's clearly interested in his his colleague and she's paid him so much lovely attention then her partner comes in and then the way that you use it's the most wonderful time it's yeah just, and the slight elevation of volume it's just oh it's just it, it, thanks for saying oh. it. It ran the risk of being a little bit too on the nose. Oh, like, no, it's great. Irony a little bit too on the nose, but it worked. Thank you. It's the most wonderful time of the year. With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the half happiest season of all. With those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings when friends come to call. It's the half happiest season of all. Do you love the music side of? of your collaboration? Absolutely one of my favorite parts of filmmaking because it's integral. It's as important as casting. Sergio Leone, for example, used to always say music is 40% of a movie. And sometimes that's an understatement. And you even consider silent film was the least silent of films because it had wall-to-wall music. I mean, music and film have a historic and very special synergistic relationship. So yeah, it's absolutely huge part of what we do. I think that's a really important point as well. That is the fact that where you don't use music is as important though, particularly in this environment of this school. Two things about that, about how there's nobody else around and the kind of silence that that gives, but also the outside world of that snow and that beautiful sound that that environment gives, you know, that kind of almost like muffled nature of kind of, it's such a unique sound, isn't it? Sometimes, sometimes in the snow, it's so quiet that it's loud. 
Yeah. It's like, like the quiet <laughs> is, is loud. But you kind of really feel that in those moments where you've, and there are lots of moments where you haven't got music. You haven't, you know, overpowered the film with, with Mark's score. Thank it would have been very easy to kind of go, no, we don't have music, we need score, but you haven't. And it kind of just elevates that kind of the isolation, I guess, in a way that a lot of them, the characters yeah. feel. Is that an Thanks easy decision to make with that? Or are you kind of holding back on things of... Well, it's a process. It's not, you know, there's decision involved, but it's decision bled over months. You know, you keep watching the thing. Oh, do we really need that music cue? Huh, would it be better without it? And, you know, I've I've worked, I've made eight features. Five of them have been with a composer, Englishman originally, Rolf Kent. Yeah. He often has said to me, you know, I'll say, well, I'm also thinking about a piece of music here and here. And he'll say, why? Why do you need it there? Seems to me you don't need it. By God, Rolf, good thing you're here. You're right. <laughs> don't write me any more music. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's lovely speaking to composers on this podcast where they do, you know, you 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 are, you're not facilitating your work, really. You're facilitating this bigger project that everybody's collaborating is. And you have to kind of leave your ego at the door and go, it's not about you. It's about what's best to tell the but story. We're all serving, we're all sorry to cut you off, but we're all serving the story. And if you interview photographers oh how do you get such beautiful images well i'm thinking about the story you know i'm thinking about what's correct for this story and for this character and if you speak to a good uh, uh, an excellent production designer he and see well your sets were so great yeah but it was all about character we're all there to serve the the darn story it's not a it's not a good sign when someone asks you what you think of a film and you say, well, it had wonderful production design. <laughs> or, oh, gosh, the cinematography was gorgeous. Unbelievable. Oh, because you're isolated. You know why I'm saying this. Because yeah. it's all got, nothing should call attention to itself. Yeah. I, it's... Ideally, I don't want to say should. It'd be prescriptive about you know what filmmakers do. But in general, you just want it all to be smooth and all wetted together. It's the idea of the kind of all the parts of the jigsaw and you look at it, the jigsaw as a whole rather than kind of going, it's not right. a lovely piece. But you must be so thrilled with the response that this film's had because it's great storytelling, like you say, through those collaborations. Thank you. And, Thank you very much. Yeah, it, it was it was so such a joy. It was also a joy to go back and watch it for a second time as well because you do kind of, there's little nuances and things in there that are really great and like that transportative nature of it as well in terms of being in that environment of that school. I wanted to ask you actually about that because schools, you know, election and that and how brilliant that was. And, and you know, in terms you. of you were you felt like you were in that environment as well, kind of. Yeah, it was walking down those corridors particularly. But what is it about, do you think, those kind of environments of of schools, those kind of characters within those walls of those schools that you find inspired in as a storyteller? You're asking a larger question of mic microcosms, aren't you, where in an enclosed space, which lends itself always to storytelling, certainly on stage, and I guess in, in many films, you know, what's going to happen inside these? You have to have a proscenium of some sort. I don't know. It's sort of the luck of the draw. I don't really think I'm like, oh, he makes school movies. <laughs> in fact, when as I- As well as. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, 25 years ago when I got the novel for election, it was an unpublished manuscript at the time. I didn't even read it for about six months because I told the producer who's a friend of mine, I go, I'm not, I don't want to make a high school movie. I'm not interested. You know, just read it, will you? God damn it, just read it. So I finally read it and went, all right, okay, this is a good human story and a good comedy. So I made that. And then completely coincidentally, 
25 years later, or 20 years later, rather, I had the idea, oh, this is a good idea, this boarding school movie, that's a good idea, that's what I'd like to see. So maybe there's an unconscious love of, but then if you want to drill down deeper, well, for a teacher, it's where he or she is like stuck in one place. So Matthew, what's his name? Matthew Broderick in election and Paul Giamatti in this one, you can say they're kind of stuck there for one reason or another as youths parade by them on their way out into the world, you know? So I guess there's something to it there. Those closing scenes with Paul in particular in this are just that kind of the journey of that character, I just think are are extraordinary. It's wonderful to see you two working together again as well. It's Thank just, you. Uh, yeah, it's great. But by, by the same token, let me just say, I myself was in school until I was 29. I, I got my bachelor's degree at 23, and then I was six years in film school, UCLA film school. So, you know, write what you know. <laughs> yeah, you've got a, got a fair yeah. bit of experience of being able to talk about yeah. what you saw, for sure. Absolutely. Um, listen, it's great to chat to you, and it's it's even well, more joy. Thanks, Edith joyous getting to to watch your, your wonderful films and your storytelling i really appreciate your time alexander thank you so much i appreciate the interest all the best From the scores to the holdovers, that's Nursing Home, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Alexander Payne. My huge thanks to Alexander for taking the time to talk to me. The holdovers, as I said earlier, is on general release now, so do get along to your local cinema to see it. There's so much out actually this weekend. You've got this. You've also got The End We Start From, which is the Jodie Comer film that we talked to Jodie about last week. And then also Daniel Kaluuya's film, The Kitchen, is up on Netflix. Daniel's going to be a guest on the podcast in the coming weeks. As is, I'll run you through some of the guests, actually, that we've got coming up. Uh, Jerskin, who's the composer of Poor Things, talking about that. Jamie Childs and James Drummond talking about Jack Daw, this beautiful little independent film set in the northeast of England. Uh, Andrew Haig and Emily Levinis-Varouche talking about All of Us Strangers. And you can find every single episode of the podcast at edithbowman.com. Follow us on our socials. We are at Soundtracking UK. We also have a YouTube channel, which we'd be really grateful if you would subscribe to. We've got lots of stuff from the podcast episodes up there, but we also have some exclusive things like a lovely chat with Volker Bertelman about his new record and the film One Life. Uh, Mia McKenna Bruce, who's the lead in How to Have Sex. And then we've also got uh, a couple of people talking about this new Netflix show called Griselda, which is all about this kind of female uh, drug baroness uh, who apparently was the only person that Pablo Escobar was scared of. 
It's been made by the people that brought you Narcos and Narcos Mexico uh, in the form of producer Eric Newman. And Eric joins us along with director Andy Baez uh, on a YouTube exclusive. So that's going to be up next week. Join us next week for another episode of Soundtracking. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>